Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Contours podcast, a production of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. My name is Nick Harris, and I am the Senior Fellow and Head of the State Resilience and Fragility Program here at the New Lines Institute. I will be the host for today's discussion on the unfolding civil crisis within Israel in some towns and cities that feature mixed populations of Palestinians with Israeli citizenship in the Israeli Jewish communities. And simultaneous to this crisis within Israel, the metastasizing war between various Palestinian factions based in Gaza and Israel. The unfolding crisis in Gaza is already having significant regional effects at a time when Israel is seeking to leverage the Abraham Accords to build partnerships with Arab states. It is also coming at a time when the Biden administration is looking to sharply reduce American focus on the Middle East and pivot to great power competition with China and Russia. I am joined for this important discussion today by three insightful experts on the topic of Israel, Palestine, and U.S. policy on the Middle East. First, my New Lines Institute colleague, Caroline Rose. Caroline is the senior analyst and head of the Power Vacuums program here at the New Lines Institute. Second, Elizabeth Zerkoff. Elizabeth is a non-resident fellow here at the New Lines Institute. She is also a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking, an Israeli-Palestinian think tank based in Jerusalem, and a doctoral candidate in the politics department at Princeton University. And also, Yassi Klein-Halevi. Yassi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, where he is also the co-director of the Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. He is a world-renowned analyst on Israel and Middle East issues, and an award-winning and New York Times best-selling author. Caroline, Elizabeth, and Yassi, thank you for joining us today. Okay, I want to start off with an overarching question for Elizabeth and Yassi to react to. Elizabeth, I'd like you to take this on first, and then Yassi. Why did a local police action in Jerusalem lead to a crisis across Israel and Palestine? Why now? So I think the, the timing of the restrictions and measures imposed by the Israeli police against worshippers, both in East Jerusalem as well as worshippers from inside Israel who sought to ascend to the uh, Haram al-Sharif, to Al-Aqsa Mosque, was incredibly sensitive. And anyone with even basic knowledge of the Middle East, of Islam, would know that taking such measures during the month of Ramadan, in addition to steps to evict families from homes in which they've lived for generations, Sheikh Jarrah, that these steps at, at this timing would be uh, incredibly sensitive. Uh, we're seeing the results of that uh, both across Israel as well as the West Bank in Gaza. And I agree with Elizabeth that these were actions that should not have been taken, certainly not during Ramadan. The Sheikh Jarrah problem is complicated, in, and we can discuss that. But to really answer your question more fully, where I disagree with Elizabeth is that I feel that her answer is not complete. And that refers to the provocations on the Israeli side. The problem is that on the side of Hamas, 
they really don't need moral justifications to go to war against Israel. They need a pretext. And Hamas seized the pretext. Israel foolishly gave the Palestinians a pretext. But uh, Hamas had a very clear interest in, in provoking the hostilities. The political stalemate within Palestinian society, the cancellation of elections in the Palestinian Authority yet again. Mahmoud Abbas is in his 15th year of a four-year elected term. Hamas wanted to shift the momentum back toward itself. Hamas is the protector of Jerusalem. This war is intended, among other things, to show the impotence of, of Mahmoud Abbas. Thank you very much, Elizabeth and Yossi. That's, it's an interesting discussion on the Palestinian and Israeli perspectives at the outset of this crisis. Uh, Caroline, I want to sort of loop you into the discussion here. It does seem as if the Biden administration was caught a bit off guard by how quickly the situation would intensify. Is there a reason for that? Thank you, Nick. And thanks so much for Elizabeth and Yossi for joining us today. Regarding the Biden administration being caught off guard, I think that in part it was due to two things. One, the fact that the Biden administration in its first few weeks and first few months, they haven't necessarily put together a comprehensive plan on how to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian tensions. And on top of that as well, I don't think that they had a game plan and they didn't put this on the top of their priority list, not only necessarily with just handling the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, but also how to approach Israeli-Palestinian peace. I think that the administration in some ways put this policy on autopilot while they were also trying to put together a larger and more comprehensive Middle East regional policy. And so I think that this, in addition to American partners in, in Europe and with Five Eyes, I think that this caught the United States uh, and the Biden administration off guard. Fortunately, I think now the administration is putting greater attention. They are mobilizing certain officials and, and starting to get a bit more involved in ceasefire discussions. However, you can see that the United States didn't necessarily have a plan or a contingency plan in place for this. And on top of that as well, I don't think that the United States expected the Palestinian issue to mobilize much of their citizens and their, their Congress as well. I think that that's been a very big reaction that has put pressure on the Biden administration to respond, and rightfully so. Thank you very much, Caroline. Elizabeth, I want to turn to you quickly. You know, what are the dynamics inside Israeli society and the sociopolitics of Israel that are shaping Israeli decision-making? Have we seen some particular themes play out over the course of this crisis, both inside Israel itself, but also in Gaza? I think that Israel's leadership, as usual, in both political and military, is able to achieve tactical successes in the fighting. The IDF was able to destroy over 100 kilometers of tunnels. It was able to assassinate uh, multiple leaders of the Palestinian factions. But this tactical success has not been translated into political gain. Essentially, still, Israel finds itself in a position of trying to find a way to present the war as a success to the Israeli public, trying to reestablish deterrence with Hamas. And the dynamic in which, you know, it was Hamas that clearly decided to escalate and fire rockets at Jerusalem in what they perceive as retaliation for Israeli actions in Jerusalem, this is something that Israel finds unacceptable. 
because it wants the confrontation with the Gaza factions to be limited to issues related to Gaza. If every time Israel abuses Palestinian rights in the West Bank or East Jerusalem or inside Israel proper, Hamas starts firing rockets, there would be no end inside. So therefore, Israel is now caught in a dynamic that is just a repeat of prior wars with Gaza as well as uh, with Hezbollah in 2006, of basically achieving tactical success, but failing to translate those into political gains. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yassi, I'd like to give you a chance to weigh in on this question. Are there any particular dynamics in Israeli society that we should be paying attention to as this crisis unfolds? And do you think that there will be long-term effects as a result of what we've seen in terms of protests and intercommunal conflict that has occurred inside Israel over the last few weeks? Uh, I think it's, it's important to understand how ordinary Israelis perceive this phase of the conflict. When there, there's a real disconnect in the in the conversation that's happening outside of Israel and Elizabeth, I, I see you are in Israel, but the kind of discourse that I'm hearing from from you is very much not part of a normative Israeli conversation. In a mainstream Israeli conversation about Hamas, there is first of all no sense of guilt. No sense uh, that this, that the moral onus is on Israel. And that's for several reasons. One is because of the nature of, of Hamas itself, an organization that is committed to Israel's destruction. The other is the indiscriminate way in which Hamas fights its wars and uh, targeting civilians as, as the heart of its, of its warfare. And then also very much in Israeli minds is uh, that, and of course, there are different versions of this narrative. The Palestinians have an opposite narrative. But the normative Israeli narrative is that that Israel in the past tried to make peace. It received uh, terrorism in response. It withdrew from Gaza and received thousands of missiles in response. Now, again, there are obviously two sides to this story. But the fact that there's such a major disconnect between the conversation that's happening about Gaza outside of Israel and what's taken for granted virtually across the spectrum in Israel has not only political consequences here, and we see it it being expressed in in the makeup of this Knesset, which is uh, overwhelmingly right-wing and centrist. The, the, The Israeli left is minuscule. And bear in mind that the Israeli left was once mainstream here. It was once the party of government. And so that also has strategic implications. And the kind of one-sided moral, or I would even say moralistic, conversation that's happening around this conflict pushes Israelis only further into a corner. And I know that's my visceral reaction, Elizabeth, listening to you. My visceral reaction is, well, wait a minute, there's more to that story than we're hearing. And I find myself needing to suppress my angry Israeli side. And if I'm feeling that, I can assure you that Israelis today generally are a very angry society. And that's important to remember because I think many people outside of Israel assume that we're sitting here feeling guilty and we're not. Israelis are not at all feeling guilty about what's happening in Gaza. 
Just to, to be clear, I was not claiming that anyone in Israel feels guilty. I was saying that the Israeli public wants to see wants to see something that proves that Israel was victorious. And thus far, there is a sense that this hasn't been deliver, delivered, that basically Hamas was able to launch rockets at Jerusalem in a way that is perceived by Israelis as unprovoked. And therefore, since Hamas was was willing to take this brazen step, it needs to incur significant losses to deter it from, from starting this again. And thus far, what the uh, IDF has been able to achieve through airstrikes in artillery shelling has been limited. Yes, Hamas has been damaged. Yes, their tunnels are largely destroyed. And yet there is a sense in Israel that more needs to be done to prevent this from happening. And this is why we're seeing now uh, de-escalation in violence. Uh, Hamas is no longer firing at central Israel at Jerusalem. Israel has also significantly reduced strikes. It stopped felling uh, high rises, which was its preferred tactic in the first days of the of this conflagration. Basically, both sides are de-escalating, and yet there is no ceasefire clearly on the horizon. And, and Hamas and, and Israeli officials say that Hamas is interested in such a, a ceasefire. Uh, for, for Hamas right now, the current cycle of violence was quite a successful one. But as far as Israel is concerned, it wants more. It wants to somehow establish, establish deterrence. So it wasn't a discussion about whether Israelis feel guilty. It wasn't about moralizing. It was simply stating, seeking to analyze and explain why we're basically seeing this fighting go on and of course, the longer this goes on, the longer there are there is potential for escalation. Uh, for example, today, two civilians were killed in southern Israel. They were both foreign workers. Had they been Israelis, Israeli children, it's quite possible that there would be even greater demand from the Israeli public to hit Gaza harder. Caroline, I want to bring you into this discussion because Yossi and, and Elizabeth have done a very good job capturing for us the tenor of the discussion within Israeli society in all its diversity. And Israel is a very diverse society with, with diverse political and social strands. And I think sometimes that is forgotten here in the United States. From the U.S. policy perspective, do you get a sense that some of this debate that Elizabeth and Yossi have relayed to us here in this discussion is impacting how the U.S., perceives its policy moves toward this crisis? Absolutely. I, th I think the U.S. is walking on eggshells. But at the same time, the U.S. has a very close defensive relationship with Israel. And it's kind of walking a very fine line between preserving it, trying to keep an already, let's say, fragile relationship, personal relationship between Biden and Netanyahu, and at the same time, uh, you know, doing what they think is right, particularly calling Israel out for, for conducting strikes that are targeting civilians and civilian buildings and looking at this rising death toll in Gaza. So, and particularly with the Biden administration's focus on a human rights agenda, this particularly relates to that. And so I think that the administration is under a lot of pressure here to do the right thing, but at the same time preserve this relationship. 
I also think, too, that the administration is cognizant of Netanyahu's fragile political and personal situation where he's facing trial. And I think that the United States also has to factor this in, the very fragile coalition government that Netanyahu is trying to achieve, the potential of having a you know fifth election cycle in less than two years and Netanyahu trying to curry up political support with essentially elongating and delaying the timeline for a ceasefire. So it's a very tough position for the United States to be in. It's also tough in their support for the Abraham Accords. I think the United States is looking at uh, its allies in the Gulf and its allies in the Middle East and trying to find a way to see whether these accords can still continue to be upheld. So, yes, I, I think that, you know, the U.S. is in a very difficult position as this is a sensitive and a very, a very fragile conflict. Thank you very much, Caroline. And I think this is an important point, the Netanyahu dynamic. And Yossi, I've, I've read a lot of your work and you have this really excellent quote from one of your Times of Israel articles where you say, Netanyahu, he's our most talented leader, and our most destructive politician. He is architect and metaphor for our best and worst impulses, for our determination and our dissipation. So I want to ask you, and then have Elizabeth weigh in, what is the end game that Netanyahu would want from this crisis? And what would that end game mean for Israel's contested politics, its sociopolitics, and the long-term state of relations between Israelis and Palestinians? Netanyahu is our one of our most brilliant tacticians and a disastrous strategist. He, if you look at, at how he survives politically, he takes politics uh, one day at a time. He is truly a master at manipulating events, but I don't see Netanyahu as a, as a thinker who is able to conceive even to himself an endpoint, not militarily and, and also not politically. I'm not sure Netanyahu has an end game for his own uh, political survival. And I think what we're seeing playing out, and, and here I, I agree with Elizabeth, that this war is great tactical success for Israel and strategic failure, which is to say that, that it is bottom line a failure for Israel. And uh, that's one of the reasons why, why the fighting is being prolonged. Hamas would be happy at this moment to call a ceasefire and claim victory, and they rightfully can. They hit Tel Aviv more intensively than any other of Israel's enemies have ever done. And Hamas is our weakest enemy. When you think of the arsenal that Hezbollah has or Iran, Hamas has one-tenth of, or one-twentieth. Of, of the missile ro or rocket capability to say nothing of the sophistication of, of Hezbollah's capabilities. And so, so this really is a great victory for Hamas. And in that same way that Netanyahu went into this war without a strategic endpoint, he's in survival mode. As a result of that, uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing this war being played out the way it is. And we're seeing Israeli politics lurching from from one uh, inconclusive election to the next. We've been through four elections over the last two years, and a fifth election now seems like a good bet. I agree with Yossi completely that Netanyahu is a brilliant tactician. I think he's one of the most brilliant and conniving 
leaders in, in Israeli history and currently in the world and able really to cling on to power really adverse circumstances. I think that the political situation in Israel since the start of this conflagration has improved markedly for Netanyahu because it created so much pressure on Naftali Bennett, the head of the Yamina party, to withdraw from his apparent support for establishing a government that would enjoy the backing of an Islamist uh, Arab party. Uh, so, therefore, basically, the prospect of, of establishing a government that is not headed by Netanyahu significantly diminished, and the likelihood of going into a fifth round of elections has significantly increased. So, so in that regard, the, the, the conflagration definitely benefited Netanyahu politically. But then if he comes out of the conflict and there's a perception in the Israeli public that this, this war, this conflagration was a failure as far as Israel is concerned, that, that can damage him. That can damage him compared to more right-wing voices who may say, you know, we, we should have gone in, invaded Gaza, wiped, you know, Gaza as the, the far right is, is calling on, on the government to do. So I think he's in a very precarious situation, but definitely in a better position than he was a week or two weeks ago when it seemed quite likely the negotiations concerning the establishment of a so-called change government one not headed by Netanyahu, were really at very advanced stages. Basically, the ministries were already divided between the coalition members. And then just, you know, with tension surrounding the Aqsa Mosque and then the, the fighting in Gaza really put a halt to, to that plan. Thank you both, Yossi and Elizabeth, for your thoughtful and nuanced responses. There's a lot of food for thought in what you've presented to us in how to think about how Netanyahu approaches the aftermath of this crisis and the political impact inside Israel, which is extremely important, of course, as Caroline pointed out, to how the U.S. thinks about its strategy towards the Middle East at a time when it is trying very hard to pivot to Asia and to confront Russia and Europe. I actually want to pick up on a point that Caroline made and, and present it to all three of you. And it'd be great if, Yossi, you could go first. You've written uh, some very powerful things uh, in the course of your career. And recently you wrote uh, something about the Abraham Accords that I thought was very provocative, which is the prerequisite for Middle East peace is Israeli power. Israeli power is driving this peace. And the Israeli security is enhanced by regional interdependence. Caroline mentioned the focus that in Washington that the Abraham Accords has brought to sort of how the U.S. thinks about its Middle East policy from the Trump administration that has just passed into the new Biden administration. So I wanted to ask the three of you, uh, does this crisis freeze the implementation of the Abraham Accords and reverse the diplomatic and strategic gains Israel made in Arab geopolitics? And are the Abraham Accords part of the internal Israeli discussion as this crisis has unfolded? I think that in Israel, the Abraham Accords are taken rightly as a fait accompli. And the Abraham Accords were driven not by moral considerations. This is hard for some people in the West to internalize. This is really about Israeli success 
and, and, and the UAE perceiving itself as the carrier of, of the Arab future. The UAE sees itself as, as the meeting point between Islam and modernity and sees itself as the most successful Arab country. One can argue this, but that's certainly the self-perception in the UAE. And as a result of that, the UAE sees this as an alliance for the future of the Middle East. There's, there's Syria, there's Iraq, there's Lebanon, Libya, Yemen on the one side, and, and there are the successful countries in the Middle East on the other. And that's really uh, the UAE and, and Israel, certainly from the perception of the UAE. And so this is a strategic long-term alliance. It is based on mutual strategic needs, in particular, a shared assessment of Iran generally and of the JCPOA, the Iran deal in particular. And it is based as well on the deep economic interests, which I mean, the ink barely dried on uh, on the treaty before, before economic uh, ties were were already being being announced. We've never seen this before in, in any of Israel's relationships with Arab countries. So I see this as a an agreement that will stand this test. This is a difficult test, but those who are um, eulogizing the Abraham Accords, or who are saying that the Abraham Accords were an illusion in imagining that you could uh, circumvent the Palestinian issue, I think that the Abraham Accords are going to outlast the skeptics. Yeah, I agree on this, and particularly since both the Emirati and the Bahraini regimes are not particularly uh, susceptible to public pressure and not particularly interested in public opinion in the home country. So therefore, expressions of solidarity that are taking place mostly online among uh, citizens of those countries towards the Palestinians are unlikely to change the strategic course of these regimes. And we see it clearly also in the way that media outlets based in the Gulf, both in, uh, in the UAE as well as Saudi Arabia, that their coverage of the violence that is now taking place is very different in tone compared to previous rounds of fighting. So they are clearly holding on to the approach of improving relations with Israel and trying to use language that will not uh, be inflammatory, kind of trying to uh, not devote too much coverage and too much attention to to these uh, to these developments to this fighting, as much as as much as possible. Really, with the exception of state media in Kuwait, the coverage has been uh, quite different. Much more kind of seeking to either ignore what's happening or or even when it is being covered to kind of try and present both sides, whereas in previous rounds of conflict, it was, you know, merely the Palestinian narrative that was being echoed. Yeah, I, I agree with both Elizabeth and, and Yossi. There are many, particularly at the beginning of the outbreak of violence, that said, look, see, you know, the Abraham Accords failed. They didn't successfully deter a crisis between Palestine and Israel. But I don't think that was the purpose of the Abraham Accords to begin with. And I think that 
in many cosmetic ways, they, they put the Palestinian and, and Israeli conflict as a precondition and, you know, stalling and verbing annexations as a precondition. But that was a way to save face. And I think that this won't, this really won't stave the Abraham Accords and other normal, normalization deals from proceeding. I think that certainly it, it might stall it a bit. It might delay, for example, more measures from Saudi Arabia to warm relations with Israel and, and other Arab and GCC countries. However, I think that, uh, you know, this was always about economic gain. This was always about improving infrastructure and, and trade with Israel and creating the Red Sea and, and rerouting from the Suez Canal to make a commercial hub. And like Yossi said, it, that really didn't have much moral incentive between Israel and, and the UAE. Now, I will say that I think that there have been a few measures that have made, uh, I think that some countries that have normalized relations, they are having a bit of a wake-up call with some of the security issues that have unfolded between with these clashes between Israel and Palestine. For example, the port of Ashkelon, it was hit by a strike and a pipeline that the UAE has a lot of interest in um, at Ashkelon, it was hit. And recently, of course, there was a deal between Israel's company EAPC and the Emirati government on this pipeline. It's part of their larger med-red land bridge strategy to save fuel and costs, rerouting it from the Suez Canal. And I think that the UAE will have a bit more of a concern and an interest in staving some violence, particularly violence that is directed at some of their infrastructural and their economic interests in Israel. Politically, I think that GCC states are trying to save face. They're allowing a few more newspapers to publish critical articles and, and, and critiques of the Israeli government. But I think at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, I think that these normalization deals are going to ensue. And the Abraham Accords and the spirit of the Abraham Accords, it's going to survive because at the end of the day, it was all about economic interests and, and that being a means to an end. Thank you very much, Yossi, Elizabeth, and Caroline for weighing in on the geopolitical implications of the current crisis on the Abraham Accords and the regional order that has been emerging over the last couple of years. Now, I want to end our discussion uh, with a question that I think really gets to the heart of the debate here in the United States that we've seen come into full bloom over the last few weeks. And also from what I have perceived from watching and listening to the discussion in Israel. Yassi, you wrote something very provocative in the Globe and Mail recently. And there's a quote, quote that I really want to give to the group that you wrote that I think really captures this. How do we fight a war against terrorists when we internalize the terror and turn against each other? Is this how Israel unravels? And that's one of the most profound things that I have heard, Yossi, about this current crisis and what it might mean. And I would like to ask you and then have Elizabeth respond. Is this how Israel unravels? Is this crisis going to be looked back at as that moment when society in Israel, the various communities in Israel can't come back together again? And then Caroline, I'd like to ask you related to that, what would it mean for a rising generation of U.S. national security and foreign policymakers 
to have Israel enter a period of endemic instability? I don't think Israel is going to unravel. And sometimes op-ed writers get carried away with rhetorical flourishes. I certainly meant it in a, in a very heartfelt way when I wrote it, but I'm wondering if I'm going to look back <laughs> on that op-ed with a more jaundiced eye. I think that Israeli society has some deep structural, long-term threats, particularly how to absorb into its mainstream the ultra-Orthodox community on the one hand, which which we've seen during the corona year has uh, really functioned increasingly as a state within a state. And on the other side of the spectrum, how do we begin a relationship with the Arab-Israeli community so that they will find some resonance in, uh, in a shared Israeli civic identity. We're very far from even having a serious conversation here about how to begin that process. My sense is that the crisis of this last year, which has taken various expressions on the ultra-Orthodox side, we've had now two major disasters that could have been averted, but were really related to uh, the carelessness of the ultra-Orthodox community. I'm speaking of the stampede that took 45 lives uh, a few weeks ago at a holy site in the Galilee, and then just this weekend, another accident in a Hasidic synagogue. Both of these, both of these accidents were man-made, were, could have been prevented, and, and happened because the ultra-Orthodox don't pay attention to, to the rules here. And so many, many Israelis are asking themselves a question, and I think that the violence uh, on the Arab-Israeli, Arab-Jewish, Arab-Israeli-Jewish-Israeli front is also going to lead to a similar questioning of what do we do? How do we begin the process of absorbing these two peripheral but substantial communities into, into the mainstream? I think that that is, in some ways, the most pressing domestic question for Israel. And I definitely link the Arab-Israeli and ultra-Orthodox communities as part of that same problem of extending a shared Israeli identity and ethos to, uh, to all parts of the society. I, I definitely think that Israeli society is deeply divided today. While there are, since Israel's establishment, there have been uh, structural divides along you know, religious and ethnic lines, those divides have definitely grown stronger in some regards, have definitely widened during the tenure of Netanyahu in office due to uh, both incitement against Arabs, the well-known phrase about uh, Arab coming in droves to vote, and a prime minister saying that his citizens voting is, is a threat, the labeling of Arab members of, of Knesset as, as terrorists or supporters of terrorism, and laws, uh, discriminatory laws that were passed under Netanyahu, Kemenitz law, the nation state law, have all contributed to a sense among Arab citizens of Israel that they, their identity, their physical existence in the sense of towns, in the sense of ability to build their homes, ability to live in Israel, live a dignified life, 
that they're all under threat. And I think this also explains the mobilization of Arab citizens of Israel surrounding the issue of Sheikh Jarrah, because there is this sense of joint struggle against uh, dispossession. Israeli municipalities, Israeli planning authorities largely do not allow the construction of uh, new homes in Arab towns and Arab neighborhoods. As a result, people build illegally. As a result, there are then house demolitions. Uh, not a single Arab uh, city was established since since Israel came into being in 1948. And therefore, there is a serious housing crisis in uh, Arab towns and in Arab neighborhoods in uh, mixed cities such as Lod. And, and as a result, those places are experiencing tension, even though people live side by side, sometimes, you know, in the same buildings, in the same neighborhoods. Uh, this does not mean that those two populations are able to then form uh, friendships or relationships of of equality, and the the sense of Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel that their identity is being erased through these laws, through uh, incitement, uh, through attempts that are positive, uh, that are intended to improve their economic situation, but are sometimes perceived as kind of a way to buy them off. This also triggered this backlash that we're seeing and really unprecedented violence that we've seen between uh, civilians in, uh, in, uh, in Israel. There have been, of course, uh, periods of violence previously between Arab citizens of Israel and uh, the Israeli police, famously in the 2000, in, uh, during the, the, the beginning, beginning stages of the Second Intifada. But this type of citizen-on-citizen violence is completely unprecedented in Israeli history and is deeply, deeply concerning. I, well, once again, I feel I agree with much of what Elizabeth has said, but I feel that there's a whole other side of the story that she's leaving out. We came very close, as recently as two weeks ago, to having uh, the first, what would have been in effect, a um, Jewish-Arab coalition, a, a coalition supported by at least one Arab party. We were seeing major breakthroughs. Now, I'm not minimizing the problems. The, the problems are there. But the problems are also, to some extent, uh, on the Arab side as well. Elizabeth said that Netanyahu was accusing some Arab politicians of supporting terror. Well, in fact, some Arab politicians have supported terror. And this has made a, um, this has complicated the integration of Arab citizens into Israel. The, this dynamic is much more complicated than a, a Bernie Sanders, Palestinian Lives Matter slogan. And that's, it's true for Gaza, it's true for the dynamics within Israeli society. And I think that if we're really going to have a serious conversation about where we go from here, then uh, you can't simply erase what most Israeli Jews believe about this conflict, have experienced, and only assume one side of, of the argument. I can piggyback on the, the last thought before we move on to the final one. Nick asked about how this will impact the American generation, the next generation of American policymakers. And I want to say, I don't think the Biden administration will pick up this ball, so to speak. I don't necessarily think that the Biden administration is going to be convinced 
to chart a peace deal or, or at least try and open up exploratory discussions. I just don't think that that is the priority with this current administration, nor will it be at least in the next four years. However, I think for the next generation of policymakers, I think that the this conflict has exposed uh, multiple layers of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, you see, of course, the engagement between the IDF and you see the engagement with Hamas. But like Liz has said, I've been following Liz on Twitter these past few weeks, and she's been circulating a lot of videos and a lot of evidence of the communal violence, which, as Liz mentioned, is at a level that you know many people have not necessarily seen before. And some of the the demographic engineering that has gone on, you know, a lot has been brought to light. And I think that the next generation of American policymakers and uh, you know America American partners, I think that they are recognizing the multiple layers of this conflict. And it all goes back to, as Yossi said, some of these structural failures that are are really are, are pushing conflict ahead. And you know, this is not going to be resolved unless we 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 look at some of these structural problems. And I think that you know, the young generation that is watching this unfold on Twitter, on 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 social media, and other platforms, I think they're recognizing this that this is not just an IDF Hamas problem, and particularly. Uh, as you know, political consensus is very hard to achieve in Israel, both within the Knesset and then also within the Palestinian Authority, some of the political rivalries that are ensuing. I think that you know this is going to continue to plague uh, not necessarily stability, but consensus in Israel and also disrupt the like quiet for quiet policy that was uh, you know going on between Gaza and, and Israel. So certainly, I think this is going to be a long-term problem that will, of course, come back to haunt both Israel, Palestine, and the United States as the United States tries to take leadership. Well, thank you very much, Caroline, Elizabeth, and Yossi, for what has been a frank, detailed, and invigorating discussion about the Israel-Palestine crisis and the impact on U.S. policy moving forward. I want to thank you for being with us today for this discussion. I want to thank all of you for listening to this discussion. We'll continue our sentinel stare on issues concerning Israel and Palestine. All the best.